It's Friday, February the 20th, 1925, in Baltimore, Maryland. We're at the Maryland State Penitentiary and the prison's shoe and boot workshop. In this era, the state pen is run as an industrial facility. There's an iron foundry, a print shop, carpet weaving and clothing factories, as well as workshops for stone cutting and license plates manufacture. Not to mention the chain gangs that get taken out to break rocks and build roads. The prisoners are a cheap and freely available resource that the authorities farm out to private enterprise. Health and safety, that's not a priority. 24-year-old inmate Richard Reese Whitmore knows all about the injuries you can sustain working in this place. It wasn't so long ago that he burned his arm on the electric iron used to smooth out shoe leather. The wound still hasn't healed, and he has to go every afternoon to the prison hospital to get the dressing changed. What the guards don't know is that the injury was self-inflicted. You see, this is Whitmore's second stretch in the Maryland pen. He knows his way around the prison, and he knows that the hospital is the weakest link in the prison security, which is why he deliberately burned himself and made sure it was bad enough to need hospital treatment. After serving his first sentence, Whitmore had been on the outside for less than a year before he was incarcerated again. And now he's facing 15 years for his part in the armed robbery of a diamond salesman. There's no way he's gonna spend the next 15 years ironing shoe leather. He's got a wife on the outside, Margaret. She's a good-looking girl. He tortures himself thinking about what she's getting up to while he's behind bars. Just after 2 p.m., the door to the shoe workshop opens. Willie Green, the trustee assigned to take Whitmore to the hospital, comes in. A trustee is a prison inmate who's shown himself to be reliable and earned extra privileges. Whitmore puts down his iron and goes with Green. As they cross the yard, Whitmore sees a pile of building waste waiting to be cleared. Green is walking a few paces in front with his back to Whitmore. Whitmore quickly checks the guard at the next checkpoint. He's looking away. So is the guard behind him. This is his opportunity. Hardly missing a beat, Whitmore scoops up a length of metal pipe, which he tucks into the leg of his coveralls. No one saw him. They reach the gate to the hospital. It's manned by a 60-year-old guard called Robert Holtman. Now, Holtman's one of those avuncular types who's friendly with the inmates. The last time Whitmore was inside, he worked at the hospital. He and Holtman got along pretty well. Whitmore knows how to make people like him when he wants to. And Holtman, he fell for his charm. Holtman lets Whitmore in with a nod. Now Whitmore climbs the stairs. The guard on each floor shouts, coming up, as he passes. He reaches a ward on the third floor. The nurse is expecting him. He pulls up his sleeve for her to examine his burn. It's the last time I'm going to have it dressed, he says. I'm going to give it the open-air treatment. He chuckles to himself at his little private joke. 
After the nurse has changed the dressing, Whitmore makes his way back downstairs. This time, the guards shout, coming down. Finally, he reaches the ground floor where Holtman is stationed. There's another man there now, a trustee with a mob cleaning the floor. But Whitmore isn't going to let the man's presence get in the way of his plans. The guard, Holtman, has his back to Whitmore as he unlocks the gate. It's now or never. Whitmore slips out the pipe and brings it down on Holtman's head. There's a sickening crack. Holtman falls to the ground, blood streaming from his wound. Whitmore takes the keys from Holtman's hand, then relieves the unconscious man of both his wallet and his gun. In the next second, Whitmore has the gun trained on the trusty. You better keep your mouth shut, he warns him. Whitmore waves his gun for the other man to move it. He sticks the barrel in his back and pushes him forward to the next locked gate, which happens to be unmanned. It's the last obstacle in Whitmore's way. Whitmore opens the gate with Holtman's keys. Then he takes the last few steps to freedom. Somehow the air tastes sweeter here. As Whitmore runs along Madison Street away from the prison, he can hardly believe how easy it was. Meanwhile, the trustee heads back inside. Yeah, he could have run away too, but he's concerned about Holtman. When he sees the veteran guard lying, unmoving on the floor, his concern turns to fear. Holtman's dead, he screams. Actually, he isn't, but he will be in a couple of days. Whitmore's escape from the Maryland State Penitentiary sets in motion a 12-month spree of violent crime. He'll be hunted by detectives from three jurisdictions, but the determination and resourcefulness of one man, Inspector John D. Coughlin from the New York State Detective Division, stands out. The integrity and determination of New York's finest will be pitted against the ruthless depravity of a heartless killer. And believe it or not, the American public takes the killer's side. My name is Mark Dodson, and welcome to Detectives Don't Sleep. Each week, we'll channel the world's most remarkable sleuths, real detectives who worked extraordinary cases. In this episode, a gang of violent criminals carries out a string of daring daylight robberies. The gang is led by Richard Whitmore, AKA the Candy Kid. His wife, Margaret, or Tiger Girl, as she becomes known, is his devoted sidekick. But one man is determined to stop him. The tough but principled New York cop, Inspector John Coughlin. From Noiser, this is the Diamond High Sweethearts, and this is Detectives Don't Sleep. Now, regular listeners will know, this show's all about the detectives. But for once, we're going to start by looking at the villains of the piece, with a deep dive into the life and violent times of the Candy Kid and Tiger Girl. Trust me. It's a hell of a story. 
for all their misdeeds. Whitmore and his wife will be celebrated as folk heroes, a deadly duo who become America's twisted sweethearts. A decade before Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow capture the public's imagination. They are the Scott and Zelda Fitzgerald of armed robbery. But as you've already heard, Whitmore doesn't care who he hurts to get what he wants. Margaret's no angel either. She's not just happy to live off the proceeds of her husband's violent crimes. She takes an active part in them. So why do people love them so much? To answer that question, you have to understand the times in which they live, the era that made them who they are. The Roaring Twenties. The First World War is over. Everyone just wants to put the misery of that conflict behind them and have a good time. Scandalous dance crazes sweep the country. A new breed of woman, the flapper, is living life according to her own rules. The Hollywood Dream Factory is in full swing. And at those wild Tinseltown parties, the drugs are flowing too. The soundtrack to it all is a startling new music with an irresistible rhythm. This is the Jazz Age, a time of excess and conspicuous consumption. But it's also the decade of prohibition. Practically overnight, the production, distribution, and sale of alcohol becomes illegal in every state in America. And while drinking alcohol itself isn't a crime, it's hard to get a hold of stuff without dealing with criminals. The law becomes something that even formally respectable people choose to ignore. In other words, criminality becomes socially acceptable. Of course, there's a spectrum of lawlessness and Richard Reese Whitmore places himself at the most extreme and violent end of it. Whitmore's family background gives no indication of the direction his life would take. Once, the Whitmore name meant something in their hometown of Baltimore. Previous generations had a reputation for hard work and public service. Richard Whitmore turned his back on all that. He didn't want to work hard. He didn't want to help others. He just wanted to take what was his and to hell with anyone else. His father blamed his waywardness on an accident at the age of two. The kid fell out of a window and banged his head so badly it caused seizures. Now, this might seem like a desperate parent clutching at straws, but a study in the 1990s indicates a link between traumatic brain injury in childhood and the onset of psychopathy. Maybe there's something in it. Whitmore grew up in a typical row house in a working class district of West Baltimore. Margaret Messler, two years his junior, was a neighbor. They went to the same schools and were childhood sweethearts. Margaret seemed to have a thing for bad boys. And Whitmore, <laughs> he was the baddest of them all. So Whitmore's first brush with the law was at the age of 10 when he was charged with firing a gun in a public place. As an adolescent, he saw the inside of various juvenile correctional institutions. In 1918, age 17, Whitmore enlists in the Coast Guard while on the run from reform school. His time in the military service doesn't end so well. 
a dishonorable discharge, is followed by a spell in New York's notorious Elmira Reformatory. Whitmore later describes the place as a school for crime. On his release, Whitmore returns to Baltimore, where he rekindles his relationship with Margaret, all grown up now. The couple marry in 1921. She's 18 and he's 20. Now, just eight days after they exchange vows, Whitmore and a buddy break into a neighbor's house and walk away with a suitcase full of stolen gear. Unfortunately for them, a witness sees them. When the police come calling, Whitmore owns up to the crime and begins his first stretch inside the Maryland State Penitentiary. It's there that he meets the older, more experienced criminals, Leon and Jacob Kramer. The brothers are impressed by Whitmore's bravado and take him under their wing. I'm historian Ruth Goodman, host of Noise's newest podcast, The Curious History of Your Home. I spent my life investigating the hidden history of everyday objects. A vacuum cleaner in your cupboard, sleek and compact today. But when it was invented, it was literally powered by horses and took four to six people to operate. The minty fresh toothpaste by a sink. Well, if you lived in ancient Greece, you'd be washing your teeth with ground up bones and oyster shells. Double glazed windows. We owe those to a French king's odd fascination with oranges. The Curious History of Your Home explores the extraordinary in the ordinary. Listen to The Curious History of Your Home each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. From award-winning podcasters Noiser, The Curious History of Your Home. Whitmore keeps his nose clean and is released in April 1924, after just three years. He returns home to his wife, Margaret. Almost immediately, the couple go into the armed robbery business together, with Margaret pulling a gun on a young sales girl in a candy store. The stunt earns her the nickname the Bob-Haired Bandit, on account of her fashionable hairstyle. The Tiger Girl tag comes later. In October 1924, Whitmore and some associates hold up a jewelry salesman in Philadelphia. One of those associates is picked up by the police and rats out Whitmore, who finds himself back inside Maryland State Penitentiary facing a 15-year stretch. It gives him a chance to resume his acquaintance with the Kramer brothers, but Whitmore doesn't intend on sticking around for long. As you've already heard, he takes matters into his own hands in the shape of a metal pipe, which he brings crashing down on Robert Holtman's skull. A few days later, Holtman dies of his injuries, and a vicious young hoodlum becomes a full-fledged murderer. Now, you'd think someone who just killed a man while escaping prison might choose to lay low for a while. <laughs> no, not Richard Whitmore. First, he makes his way to Philadelphia, where he puts a new gang together. Then, just three weeks after his escape, he brings the crew back to Baltimore 
to carry out a job. All right, now, let's just think about this. He could have picked a target in Philly, or anywhere, to be honest, but no. He deliberately goes back to Baltimore, where he knows the police are looking for him. In fact, they're not just looking for Whitmore. They've got orders to shoot on sight. He's taking a huge risk. Why? The only possible explanation is, just for the hell of it, this guy's arrogance is breathtaking. For this job, the gang targets a middle-aged bank messenger called J. Wall Holtzman. Whitmore has done his homework, finding out where Holtzman lives and what his daily routine is. All that time listening to his mentors, the Kramers, has paid off. Holtzman's job is to go to local businesses and pick up their cash to deposit at the bank. Whitmore knows that when Holtzman leaves his home after his lunch break, he could be carrying as much as $10,000. That's around $175,000 in today's money. As Holtzman gets into his car, two masked men jump in, one in the back and one next to him. The guy in front is Whitmore. He laughs as he waves the gun in Holtzman's face, snarling, do as I say or you'll be a dead guy. Holtzman, he doesn't want to be a dead guy, so he does what he's told, which is to drive. Whitmore directs him to a quiet back street about two miles away where the rest of the gang is waiting with a stolen car. They grab the two satchels of cash Holtzman is carrying and speed off. The crime takes place in the middle of the day, another sign of Whitmore's recklessness. Okay, yeah, he's got a scarf over his face, but he obviously gets a kick out of taking risks. After the Holtzman ambush, the gang begins to feel the heat in Baltimore, so they move operations 200 miles northeast to New York. It's a different state, which means a different criminal jurisdiction. They can start again with a clean slate. Then, in April 1925, the Kramer brothers finally make parole. They head to New York to team up with Whitmore. The Kramers are the brains of the operation. Whitmore's the brawn, a weapon they can use to get what they want. And what they want is diamonds. Under the Kramers' influence, the gang carry out a series of armed robberies, all meticulously planned and ruthlessly executed. It starts in May 1925 with a raid on Ross's jewelry store on Grand Street, New York. The gang carries out roughly one heist per month over the spring and summer of 1925. Their operations cover a wide area, with robberies in Cleveland and Buffalo, as well as New York. Motor cars are becoming faster and more reliable, which helps them achieve their impressive range. They have their own Cadillac, but always steal a fresh vehicle for each job, switching plates to confuse the police. It's estimated that the total value of their takings over a five-month period is as much as $250,000. When you take inflation into account, that's worth over $4 million today. <laughs> Who knew armed robbery could be so lucrative? 
the gang members dressed like movie stars, or movie stars pretended to be gangsters. They wore fashionable suits and coats and positioned their fedoras at an angle. They project a glamorous outlaw image. The public sees them as daring heroes, taking what they want so they can live the life everyone aspires to. What about the victims? Well, jewelry stores have insurance, don't they? And somehow, nobody really thinks about the ordinary Joes who are terrorized while just doing their jobs. Maybe that says a lot about the spirit of the age. Brash, hedonistic, and a little heartless. Truth is, the gang's exploits sell newspapers. And even when they start killing people, the public laps it up. gang keeps their weapons in a locker at New York Penn Station. If any of them are picked up with guns on them, they're in big trouble. This is where Margaret comes in. She's the gang's gun girl, taking the weapons out of the Penn Station locker and carrying them to a meeting point in a large bag. Now, as a woman, she's far less likely to be stopped than any of the men. In the beginning, the weapons that Margaret distributes are used mostly as a threat, a way of getting store owners to hand over the goods. Once or twice, Whitmore has to resort to pistol whipping some would-be hero, just to show he means business. No one's been killed yet. All that's about to change. In the fall of 1925, the gang decides to branch out from jewelry theft and go after hard cash in Buffalo. It's a decision that has fatal consequences. It's 9.15 a.m. on Thursday, October the 29th. An armored Federal Reserve truck pulls up outside a branch of the Bank of Buffalo. 15 minutes later, the bank opens its front doors and an employee comes out. The Federal Reserve Guard riding shotgun gets out of the truck and walks around to the rear. He opens the doors and takes out two bags of cash. As the guard hands over the bags to the bank clerk, a fashionably dressed young man wearing a fedora strolls up and pulls a revolver. Stick him up, he shouts. Yeah, it's cliche. But the thing is, it generally gets results. But not this time. This time, the clerk doesn't stick him up. Unfortunately for him, the man with the gun has a short fuse. Now that's right, it's Whitmore. Whitmore pulls the trigger and shoots the clerk in the arm. The clerk drops the bags. Whitmore scoops him up and runs off. A Buick appears from nowhere, speeding the wrong way up a one-way street. It's the rest of the gang. Some of the men in the car get out and open fire. Others empty their guns from inside. All hell breaks loose. There's a shootout on the street with pedestrians caught in the crossfire. The Federal Reserve driver takes a bullet in the side of the head and dies instantly. Sheltering behind the truck, the guard takes aim at Whitmore and fires. Whitmore drops one of the bags he's carrying. There's a stinging pain in his wrist. He looks down and sees blood, but carries on running towards the Buick. A second later, the truck guard emerges from his hiding place to take aim again, but one of the gangster's bullets finds him first. 
crumples, hits the ground. The Buick tears away. Whitmore and the other gang members jump onto the running boards as it gathers speed. An on-duty cop races to the scene, firing his gun at the moving car. He takes out a side window and one of the tires, but the car carries on moving. The cop flags down a passing car and orders the terrified driver to follow that car. But just then a streetcar pulls out, cutting off their pursuit. The gangsters get away. The whole incident takes less than a minute. One man is dead. Another will die later from his wounds. For Whitmore and his gang, it's the best minute's work they've ever done. When they finally ditch the stolen Buick and count their takings, they discover $93,000 in the satchel. That's over a million and a half dollars today. And this is hard cash. They don't have to fence it. They just have to spend it. To do that, they head back to New York City. Whitmore's own wound turns out to be superficial. The bullet just nicked him. It's a small price to pay for such a rich haul. $93,000 will keep him in sealskin coats, fedora hats, and sharp suits for quite a while, not to mention clothes and trinkets for their lady friends. The gang has acquired expensive tastes. They like to party, and for them, no party is complete without drugs. Whitmore's own weakness is for cocaine. His coke addiction is said to be one of the reasons for his Candy Kid moniker, candy being a street term for cocaine. But candy could also refer to his other addiction, diamonds. After the success of the Buffalo Federal Reserve hijack, the gang could be forgiven for living the high life for a while. But Whitmore takes time out from partying to settle a couple of personal scores. On Sunday, November the 1st, he travels to Baltimore to gun down a bootlegger called Spike Kenny, who he suspects of having an affair with Margaret. After the attack, Kenny's overcoat is riddled with bullet holes. But miraculously, he survives. I guess shooting from the hip doesn't always guarantee the best name. Back in New York, Whitmore settles the second of his scores. This time, his name is more accurate. The body of Cy Golden, a former friend and gang member who double-crossed Whitmore, is found dumped in a graveyard in Lower Manhattan. Five bullets in his body. His debt settled, Whitmore's gang carries out two more jewelry heists in December. Then they receive a tip-off from a fence concerning a shipment of 100 uncut diamonds from Amsterdam. Prize is too big to resist. They begin planning what'll be their richest heist to date. It's also the crime that brings Candy Kid to the attention of his nemesis, Inspector John D. Coughlin, and is the beginning of the end for the Whitmore gang. On the morning of January the 11th, 1926, diamond importer Albert Godfis and his brother-in-law, Emmanuel Veerman, is ambushed by Whitmore and his gang as they're walking through New York's Diamond District in Midtown Manhattan. 
Inside Goatfist's overcoat pocket, there's a wallet containing 200 uncut diamonds that he's just withdrawn from the company's safe deposit box. The haul could be worth anywhere between $100,000 and $500,000. If the upper value is correct, that's over $8.5 million in today's money. The Goldfish robbery is a daring and extremely violent ambush carried out in broad daylight in front of scores of witnesses. And Whitmore, in particular, shows no mercy to his victims, raining blows down on their heads with the butt of his gun. What makes the crime even more audacious is that the streets of the Diamond District are generally crawling with police, whose job it is to protect the wealthy business owners from just this sort of attack. Not surprisingly, the NYPD is embarrassed by the ease with which the robbers pulled off their vicious assault, and then there are all the other raids that have been happening over the last 10 months or so. The gang's high success rate hasn't gone unnoticed. It's time to find out who's behind this violent crime wave and stop them. This task falls to Inspector John D. Coughlin. Inspector Coughlin is a big, broad Irish-American with black, bushy brows and a thick mustache. He confronts the world with a piercing, uncompromising gaze. Like Elliot Ness in Chicago, Coughlin has the reputation of being untouchable. In other words, incorruptible. Coughlin leads by example inspiring fierce loyalty in his tightly-knit team of detectives. Goldfish and Veerman survived the vicious assault, but they're not able to identify any of the attackers. Inspector Coughlin is undeterred. He reviews all the jewelry heists that have taken place in New York over the last year, looking for patterns. He identifies several that share consistent features. All take place in broad daylight, all are meticulously planned and seamlessly executed. All involve a fast car, recklessly driven, and the perpetrators are always sharply dressed in expensive clothes. But the most striking feature of all these crimes is the violence. At the same time as he's analyzing the heists, Inspector Coughlin receives information from the Cleveland police about a gangster they're looking for called Joe Langdon. The description of Langdon rings a bell with some of the detectives in Coughlin's team. Big ears sticking out of the side of his head like jug handles, small head, sickly complexion, and a shuffling walk. They know him as Shuffles Goldberg. Like many gangsters of the period, this guy uses a number of aliases. Goldberg is also wanted by Baltimore detectives who suspect him of involvement in the attack of the bank messenger. Remember? That was the incident that kicked off the gang's crime spree back in March 1925. Now, Coughlin notices similarities between the two muggings. It looks to him like the same gang, a gang which counts Shuffles Goldberg as a member. Inspector Coughlin tasks his most trusted detectives with finding Goldberg. He has him do the rounds of New York hotels describing Shuffles Goldberg to the staff. Pretty soon, they track him to the Empire Hotel on West 63rd Street. 
The detectives are eager to bring him in. But Coughlin's instincts are to wait. He's got a hunch Goldberg's going to lead him to the rest of the gang. So he instructs his men to put a tail on him. It's a good call. The detectives stick close to Goldberg, taking turns following him so he doesn't get suspicious. He leads him to an upscale apartment building on the Upper West Side. Sometime later, Goldberg emerges in the company of a good-looking couple dressed to the nines. She's dripping with diamonds. He's wearing a tailored suit and silk shirt. Inquiries with the building's management reveals the identity of the couple as Mr. and Mrs. Horace Q. Waters. Coughlin's men follow Goldberg for several days. His routine never varies. He meets the Waters at their apartment, then goes to lunch with them at the hotel store or some other high-end eatery where they meet up with other fashionably dressed friends. Among them, the detectives notice a pair of slightly older men who could be brothers. The day usually ends at Club Shantae, one of New York's most celebrated night spots. There, in the words of one club employee, Mr. Waters spends money like a millionaire. The detectives can't keep up with Horace Waters' spending, but they keep him in their sights. Something about his face looks familiar. Then, one night, a penny drops. That's Dick Whitmore, one of the detectives says. Baltimore wants him. If Mr. Waters is Richard Whitmore, then Mrs. Waters is likely to be Margaret. Next, the detectives identify the two older men as Leon and Jacob Kramer, known as prolific safe crackers with a long criminal record. The detectives report back to Inspector Coughlin. After a little digging, he discovers that the Kramers served time in Maryland State Penitentiary with Whitmore. That must be where they teamed up. He's pretty sure he's looking at the core members of a criminal gang. And his hunch is it's the gang that held up Albert Goldfuss and Emmanuel Veerman. The way they're throwing money around, it certainly looks like they hit the jackpot recently. Coughlin bides his time, waiting for the right moment to make his move. And that moment comes in the early hours of March the 19th, 1926. That night, two of Coughlin's men, Detectives Sullivan and Cronin, follow Shuffles Goldberg to Club Shantae. Whitmore, Margaret, and the Kramer brothers are also there. Whitmore's in a belligerent mood. He shouts at the staff, complaining about the wine. At one point, he pulls a gun on a waiter. The manager tries to calm things down, but Whitmore's out of control. It looks like the candy kid's been at the candy. Sullivan and Cronin exchange a wary glance. Maybe they should haul him in before he does something dangerous. They decide to wait a little longer. They watch as Whitmore bullishly announces he's got better wine at his apartment. He's going to get a bottle. And he wants the manager and the waiter to go with him. Don't ask me why. Just in one of those moods, I guess. The two guys can see he won't take no for an answer. So they go along. Outside the club, 
Whitmore and his new best buddies get into the gang's Cadillac and head off. By now, it's around 5 a.m. Whitmore's driving is all over the place as he swerves wildly across the road. He doesn't see the car with its lights off, tailing him a carefully judged distance. Detectives Sullivan and Cronin follow Whitmore to the Upper West Side, where he disappears inside his apartment building to pick up a bottle of wine. Then he drives to a restaurant on Broadway. As Whitmore's party goes inside, the two detectives watch the restaurant from across the street. Eventually, Whitmore and his two reluctant companions come out. They get back in the car and drive off. Just as the sun is coming up, Maybe Whitmore's sobering up a little because he looks in his mirror and sees a car on his tail. It's the cops. Has to be. Whitmore puts his foot down. The car behind accelerates to keep up. At times, the two cars are bumper to bumper. Whitmore reaches out the window with a gun in his hand and starts shooting. With half an eye on the road in front, Whitmore's aim is about as erratic as his driving. Behind the wheel of the other car, Detective Sullivan does his best to avoid the bullets, while Detective Cronin unholsters his gun and returns fire. Before long, Whitmore's all out of ammunition. At the same moment, the Cadillac runs out of gas and the detective's car pulls alongside, forcing him over to the side of the road. The two detectives get out. They run over to the Cadillac. They point their guns at the men inside and shout for Whitmore to stick them up. But for once, he knows what it's like to be staring down the barrel of a gun. But Whitmore's got one last trick up his sleeve. As the detectives disarm him, he holds out two $1,000 bills. That's about half their annual salary for each of the cops. But just like their boss Coughlin, Detectives Sullivan and Cronin are untouchable. They snap on the handcuffs and take Whitmore in. Despite the fact that it was New York detectives, led by Inspector John D. Coughlin, who arrested him, Whitmore is taken to Baltimore to stand trial for the Federal Reserve truck heist in which two men died. Several witnesses place him at the scene of the crime, but the jury fails to reach a decision and a mistrial is declared. Whitmore then has to answer for the murder of prison guard Robert Holtman. This time, he's found guilty and sentenced to death. Crowds of supporters gather outside the Maryland Penitentiary, the very prison where he killed Holtman. The newspapers write sympathetic stories about the candy kid and the woman they're now calling Tiger Girl because of her fierce devotion to her husband. The dime store thriller of two heartless gangsters has turned into a love story of the age. Richard Reese Whitmore is hanged on Friday, August 13th, 1926. No one could claim he's an innocent man, but many see him as a tragic hero. At his funeral, it's said that Margaret has to be prevented from throwing herself in the open grave. Margaret Whitmore is never convicted for her part in any of the gang's crimes. She later remarries and dies at the age of 90 in 1993. 
Despite his success in bringing the candy kid to justice, Inspector Coughlin's career ends in disappointment. In 1928, he forced out of the detective division after his failure to solve the notorious gangland killing of Arnold Rothstein. Not surprisingly, no one else was able to crack that case either. But maybe that's a story for another day. Next time on Detectives Don't Sleep, it's our Halloween special, and we'll be venturing into the twilight world of spirits and mediums in the company of a fearless female psychic fraud investigator. Rose Mackenberg was a regular private detective until she met the great Harry Houdini, escapologist, illusionist, and tireless campaigner against fake mediums. Houdini sees Rose's potential and recruits her into a secret service, a crack team of special investigators whose mission is rooting out and exposing psychic hoaxes. Enter a world of darkened rooms and mysterious cabinets where you can never quite believe your eyes or your ears. What's that ghostly sound? Whose fingers are those ruffling your hair? And who's that breathing down your neck? So dim the lights and join hands for Houdini's spirit detective on the next episode of Detectives Don't Sleep. And if you don't want to wait a whole week to hear this hair-raising tale, subscribe to Noiser Plus to listen now.